Coming up on this week's show, how Mark Zuckerberg is transforming GTA San Andreas. A retro gaming Christmas movie is on the way. And we celebrate 40 years of the ZX Spectrum with Anthony and Nicola Caulfield. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out Sega Master System, a visual compendium officially licensed by Sega and featuring around 200 games, including some of the system's most iconic franchises, Alex Kidd, Fantasy Zone, Shinobi, Fantasy Star, lots more as well. You can check it out on the rest of their retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 301, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to the show that takes you behind the scenes on classic video games, the people that made them, the companies existed back then, and the culture that surrounds them as well. I mean, we cover kind of everything to do with retro gaming and computers on this show. That could be, you know, content creators today. It could be journalists from magazines back in the day. We cover it all on here. Documentary makers as well. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But um, I just want to say how incredible... Don't want to blow on trumpet or anything too much, but our three hundredth episode. How much fun was that show? It, it was. It was great fun, and it was a, a great reaction by everybody uh, being able to watch us live. You know, I, I feel like I'm missing out not seeing you guys in the studio again. But mm. also, we need to remember the Christmas quiz is coming up, guys. So. <laughs> we've got a next <laughs> thing to move on to <laughs> but yeah thank you so much to everyone that um not only has watched the video version that we did which is available on youtube now from last week everyone that contributed to the show everyone that asked questions our amazing guests that came on as well it was just such a giggle doing it last week so um now we're into our uh 300 episodes 301 this week We've got plenty more good stuff to come, and actually this week is going to be another packed show. Lots of retro gaming stories to talk about as well. Obviously, we're kind of getting into the party season now, being that we are uh, into November, and it does mean that this month we're going to finally get to see Games Master Rebooted. Now, this is something that we've been talking about, God, for like, what, the last six months or so since it got announced this is Games Master, which was an iconic British TV show. There's actually now <laughs> coming back this month, and a trailer landed last week that actually I don't don't ask me how. We actually <laughs> were the first ones that got it out there, weren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We won't we won't explain how because we don't want to throw anybody under the bus or anything like that. But you know, we posted it, and I think it was Dan who mentioned like, oh, I've not seen this anywhere else. Channel Four haven't mm. even posted it. Ah, screw it. <laughs> Let's get it out there. And Let's get it out there. Um, NME uh, mentioned us on there. We're embedded in Eurogamer, I think. Suddenly we became like the source of it. So um, yeah, I apologise to the uh, the press department at E3, but you know, it was nice to see the trailer out there as well. And there's been a lot of people commenting on our socials. Interestingly, and I don't know if this is a bit of a divide, but it seemed that like people on our Twitter loved it and people on our Facebook page hated it. Yeah, there, there was a bit of a divide, but you know, you know, personally, I thought it looked really cool. I thought there was a lot of legacy stuff and there's there's been a lot of really bad video game shows but it's all down to your personal taste isn't it like everybody everybody has different memories of it and stuff and uh i guess i guess we'll see when it comes out but you guys could probably enjoy the uh, trailer on our twitter i'll be honest I, it's pretty much what i expected it would be it's what i expected it to be as well like mm. you know i'm i vaguely remember games master and obviously yeah. like i've seen a lot of stuff about it on youtube and stuff obviously being on this podcast and, but like the, one of the main things i kept on seeing was people were like oh it's completely different it's not the same blah 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 
I, I mean, I could be wrong. I could be being really naive here and I don't want to upset anybody, but some people are like, oh, bloody hell, Channel 4 putting celebrities on it. I'm sure there were celebrities on the on the original. Yeah. Like, um, I could be wrong. Like, There's actually some repeat celebrities. So there's celebrities that were on the original series that are in the trailer that a few people haven't spotted. But also oh. there was, um, uh, like, that kid in it, that was Big Boy Barry's son. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's a connection with, like, Games World and the old stuff. So they're, they're doing a lot of stuff that kind so of they are trying. back. Yeah, yeah, but I think... Maybe it's just people being reactionary straight away, or maybe people just don't like the new format. We'll, we'll see when it we'll comes see. out and yeah, what we'll the uh, viewing figures are like. Yeah. But in terms of the celebs, I mean, the original series, I remember had like 911 on there and Take That were on it, and there was, you know, soap stars off Neighbours and Home and Away. So it's nothing new, you know, them having like celebs interplay games. That always featured in the original series, which I think, you know, looking at the comments online, a lot of people seem to have forgotten about. Mm. So, yeah, it's definitely nothing new. What do you think of Sir Trevor McDonald as Games Master then, the, uh, the view that we got of I him? I thought his voice sounded good. Yeah. Like, like, as the voiceover, he had the Games Master tone. I think it did well because I showed it my mum straight away and she was like, oh, that's that TV show with the man with the monocle who was a robot. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it was. And she was like, oh God, when did that end? About a year or two ago? And I was like, uh. <laughs> 23 years ago, mum. <laughs> yeah, I was like, quite a while ago, mum. I was like, I think it was like 25 years ago. She was like, oh, I thought it was only a couple of years ago. <laughs> but like, even she was like, oh, that looks good. Kind of thing. Like Trevor McDonald's a good choice. So yeah, I'm, pr- I'm pretty pleased with it. I'll, I'll be watching it. I mean, we've only seen 30 seconds of it, so yeah. I think, obviously, you've got to give the full... I mean, I think it comes out in about two weeks. I've got to think it was there. November 21st, it lands yeah, on Yeah, just got to wait for Dan to leak the uh, first episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that it's great to see gaming back on TV, yeah. you know, if yeah. nothing else. So that, that's, that's a good thing, I think. So um, I look forward to seeing the full episode. If you want to check out the trailer um, on our Facebook and Twitter, or, uh, of course, head to um, E4, you know, our Channel 4's official channels, which uh, I believe it's on there as well, not just our pages. <laughs> so if you want to check it out, and it lands in a couple of weeks time now we have got an amazing guest this week um another couple of people have been on the show before actually because it seems you know people that we've had on this podcast in the past are doing new stuff all the time so we do love kind of checking in and talking about their latest projects as well and today we're going to be joined by anthony and nicola caulfield who were behind the bedrooms to billions movies that i think are some of the best retro gaming documentaries i've ever seen i mean i remember the original one that kind of focused on you know the uh, the industry of like the um the bedroom programmer, you know, becoming famous in the 80s and all those companies that surrounded it as well. We had the Amiga years as well, the PlayStation special they did recently. And these always go really in depth. I think the, um, the latest one, the PlayStation one, was about two and a half hours long. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really good quality. And like they've got, you know, they, they interview absolutely everyone. They've got all of the key characters in their movies and, you know, testament to them. They're on like Rebellion for distribution so they're on stuff like amazon prime and uh you know th- these are really high-end documentaries and they're actually doing a new one uh which which falls well in in with uh what's been going on recently which is the uh, 40th anniversary of the zx spectrum and uh sadly the passing of clive sinclair as well so uh it's a new project all dedicated to the spectrum i love the name of it as well they've called it the rubber keyed wonder 40 years of the ZX Spectrum. So really they're aiming to do the definitive documentary exploring why the Spectrum was so significant and the role that it had in video game history. And if you've seen, 
obviously, like I mentioned, any of their previous documentaries, you know what attention to detail and how in-depth they go with their documentary. So it's currently running on Kickstarter. Um, at the time of recording this, I mean, I think they wanted 35000 They're already at 52000 and there's about a week left on it as well if you want to back it. And actually, for Retro Hour listeners, if you listen to the end of this podcast, there is actually a secret little competition that's only open to you. So listen to the end of this week's podcast and you'll find out more about that. But it is going to be a bit of a celebration of the 40 years of the ZX Spectrum, which is coming up next year. We're going to be talking to Anthony and Nicola Caulfield, getting all nostalgic about the Specky and talking about their new movie in around 25 minutes from now. Now, of course, last week, us boys were all together for the first time in studio and, you know, first time in about 18 months. You may have, you know, if you watch the video version, you'll see we were there, you know, microphones all set up set around this table, and, of course, we had some Beer 52 on the go. It does feel like Beer 52 is an essential ingredient to whenever us guys hook up and do something, really, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Whenever, like, you know, Ravi, just whenever Ravi's about, he's like, guys, I've got a bit of Beer 52 yep. on the go. <laughs> like, I don't brings it, it in the boot of the car kind of thing, <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely, let's get it going. Yeah, I mean, now we're getting into this time of year. It won't be long till Christmas parties are going on and everything as well. So it is always, you know, something central to our parties. And they've sponsored this week's episode. So let's give a big thank you to our friends at Beer 52. And what about this? This is going to sound like music to your ears. What about a free case of award-winning beer? That sounds absolutely amazing, especially around Christmas. Free beer for you thanks to our sponsor beer 52 now all you have to do if you live in the uk you can take this up right now head to beer52.com slash retro so that's beer number five number two.com slash retro you cover the five pound 95 postage and they will deliver this exclusive case that is worth 24 pounds right to your door now beer 52 as well i mean they are you could describe them as beer boffins and they're on a mission to find the best beer anywhere in the world. And what's great about their cases is every month they visit a different country and they seek out the best small batch breweries, sample their finest craft beers, and then they carefully create a case and send it out to their lucky members. Now they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of members all around the world. And this month's case is a collection of the highest rated beers that their members have rated over the last year. So really you're getting the best of the best rated by beer fans. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, thinking of some of the ones we've had recently. We had a beer from Germany's ancient ABK Brewery. We had um, the Garden Brewery in Croatia as well. There's a West Yorkshire pack as well. Love the hazy pale ale that they did from there too. So, and the thing about it is you can customise your box as well. Like Ravi, you're not into your dark beers at all, are you? Oh, no, no, I can't handle them, but I love light beer. I'm, I'm really yeah. into that stuff and, and, you know, it's just really good actually having that choice um, because uh, you don't want to be stuck with a certain type. You want to you want to pick what you like. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't like dark beer, choose a light option. Each case comes with their award-winning beer magazine for men and, of course, the bit that Joe looks forward to, the tasty <laughs> snack that you need with your beer as well. There's no minimum commitment. If you want, you can just try the free case, see what you think of it. If it's not for you, cancel it or pause it at any time. And of course, you'll be supporting our podcast by taking up this amazing offer. Head to beer52.com slash retro to claim your free case of eight craft beers. Thanks to our good friends at Beer52. Now, before we get into our chat with Anthony and Nicola Caulfield, who are coming up on the show soon, Mark Zuckerberg, he's been making the headlines recently. Um, obviously, Facebook is now... Meta. <laughs> we won't go into that. <laughs> Whenever I think of Mark Zuckerberg, it's always like, you know when you're at work and there's like somebody you know your friend really doesn't like and you're like, here's your best mate. Whenever I think of Mark Zuckerberg, I'm always like, Ravi's best mate. 
<laughs> I've been trying to get rid of him for years. <laughs> Ravi is like the member of our team. I think you've deactivated your Facebook profile about four or five times now. Literally, I use my Facebook to talk to guests, and that is talk literally it. I've, I've got this plugin that removes the whole Facebook wall and stream and just gives me nice quotes. There you go. That's, I think I need that as well. <laughs> Well, now that um, Facebook, obviously, they do a lot more than just their social network, you know, hence the company rebrand, I imagine, Meta, to try and, you know, shake off some of that legacy, even though we all know it's the same company. But this is quite interesting. Obviously, they bought um, Oculus, didn't they? Well, 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 yeah, that's the whole idea behind Meta. So uh, Meta, the Oculus Quest headset is going to become the Meta headset, and then you get put into this new world, which is like a... Metaverse. Metaverse, that's it, and... uh, yeah, I've, I've got some things to say on that in a minute anyway. Well, what we're interested in, I mean, you know, there was a whole um, keynote they did, you know, where people were sat in the crowd and they're talking about using it in offices and all that kind of thing. But the bit that we were focusing on here is um, that he actually announced there's going to be a virtual reality version of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas coming out on um, Oculus platforms, which... Um, it's quite an interesting choice. It's coming out on the Quest 2 headset, which seems to be the one that you know I'm seeing most about at the moment. I will be honest, I'm kind of over VR. I I, I never got into VR just simply because I couldn't afford it. Um, mm. My only times ever really playing it is was the PlayStation VR at your house, Dan. And then I think yeah. I may have played it at one other friend's house. Now, I, I always bring our stories back to Resident Evil, but Resident Evil 4 recently got released. You know, It wasn't a re-release or a port. It's a new version of Resident Evil 4, a new VR version for Oculus Quest 2. That came out, like, in the last three, four weeks. I'm seeing nothing but, like, praise for it and just people saying how amazing it is and how immersive it is to, you know, run around. You know, Resident Evil 4 was quite action-packed. I'm seeing really good things about it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I really want to play that. But like you say, it might be a novelty, and I'd probably get over it within a couple of days of playing it. But with that game, yeah, what I wanted to point out is Resident Evil 4 is quite a linear game. So I can see that working, you know, for Oculus and stuff like that. I can see it working. Whereas GTA, you know, San Andreas is such an open world game. I'm just like, how how is that going to work in VR? Do you know what I mean? I mean, what? obviously it is going to work, but it's just, I just think that's crazy. What what I think it is, is I think there's, there's GTA roleplay at the moment, which is a huge kind of thing that's going on. And, mm. and it says here, the new version... Uh, one of the greatest games will offer an entirely new way to uh, experience this iconic open world in virtual reality. What I think this is, is I think this is his kind of let's get people into meter and this metaverse by doing it via GTA San Andreas. Isn't it an interesting choice of game, though, that it's San Andreas out of all of them? Yeah, quite a violent game. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, Resident, I, Evil, I mean, Resident know, Evil 4 is violent, but yeah. You know, I think. And 20 like, years old. Yeah, I yeah, think, yeah. I think this, to be honest, is going to probably be more than the most toxic VR experiences you can have. If you look at Facebook and how they don't bother to moderate absolutely anything, how the hell are they going to moderate people in VR? And especially if someone installs a hot coffee mod. <laughs> it's gonna go where's Dan oh he's on GTA it's gonna go down here pretty quickly me. what is a hot coffee mod um so Ravi probably knows this a little bit better but essentially there was a a mini game in GTA San Andreas which was removed where essentially you could have sex with your girlfriend and you controlled it like you know a bit like um 
a rhythm game, you know, like the, the buttons <laughs> was, would come down the screen. Okay, now I'm getting interested. <laughs> and essentially, uh, they called it because it was like, do you want to come in for hot coffee kind of thing? That's like what they'd say in the clip. And in the PC version, people hacked it. Well, it was uh, it was it was it, left it was, in the code. It was left it was, in the code. It was meant to be yeah. removed, yeah. And there was a yeah. huge lawsuit over it and everything. Um, I don't think that'll be in it, but I'm, I'm, I just <laughs> it would be funny that, if it was. <laughs> I just think the potential for like madness, especially with Facebook in control of a reality, any mm. kind of reality, and uh, toxicness is gonna be insane. It's like I've I've played VR chat and stuff and. Uh, uh, Second Life, do you remember that as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it all just goes downhill so quickly. <laughs> like, you know, I, I got one of the um, the earlier Oculus headsets, the Go, about probably two or three years ago. I think you played it, Joe, when you came over mine. Um, yeah, I think I back. did. Yeah, and I used it for like about a week. Packed it away. I haven't used it since. Um, same with my PSVR. You know, I used that intensely for about a month, and then you know, kind of got bored of it. But I remember actually went on the VR chat on the Oculus Go. And I remember it was like a Friday night. My missus had got to bed and I thought, oh, I'll see what's happening on here. I found a nightclub that you could go into. And this guy just kept following me around and getting really close to me in this club. I was really freaked out. And he was talking to me and like rubbing me with his arm and stuff. I was like, oh, my God. So I don't think I've used it since. Yeah, and he was asking I, I, you if you've ever played hot coffee. <laughs> I wonder what it meant. San Andreas world and you've got loads of gangsters chasing you around. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think for a bit of novelty, if, you know, one of my mates had forked out for um, you know, an expensive VR headset like a Quest 2 or something. I, it's, it is something I'll probably play for an hour or two and be impressed by it. I just kind of think, I, I don't know, I think VR to me, it just feels like something that can only be used in short bursts. I don't know. I just kind of feel after I've been in it for like 20 minutes, half an hour. You've had enough. I've kind of... Yeah, you just want to get out I, of it. I've not tried the new headsets, you see. I tried the ones Same, which yeah. were tethered and stuff, and they were a bit uncomfortable and stuff. Maybe they're, like, a lot lighter and a lot... You can do, like, longer sessions on them and stuff. But still, it's like you need to clear your room out of space. You need to have a dedicated zone. You know, you always got in the back of the head that you're going to walk into a wall. It's um, <laughs> unless Unless you're one of these really rich people that can kind of create a VR room in the house, you know. You know, I imagine this is going to be like, and probably like a stay still kind of experience, I imagine. Which, you know, most of the PSVR games are that. You just sit down, you know, you might have the motion controls in your hand. Just doing drive-bys um, on your couch. See, if there is anything that would get me into VR, I think it might be that, you know, being able to kind of explore worlds from games I used to love back in the day in a different way. That could be something that kind of piques my interest a little bit, but probably not enough to spend like, what, 250, 300 quid on a on a high-end headset for something I'm probably only going to play for one afternoon. I don't know if that's just me or whether it really appeals to you guys. If I could get the Resident Evil 4 set up for mm. cheap, then yes. But I just, the hassle of setting it up and like you say, like the free for, like probably £350, £400 with other different things I'd need to set it up kind of thing. I just, I can't justify it at the moment. Just like you say, just to play for an afternoon or play for a couple of weeks or play when friends come over kind of thing. So it's it's probably a no from me. If it if it had moderation and it was a nice experience, then probably yeah. But um I really don't think Facebook's gonna deliver that. <laughs> You're not gonna have like VR mods walking around like <laughs> don't do that. That side of it doesn't really bother me that much because if someone's been an idiot, I'll just, you know, come off it or whatever. Like I did with that weird guy that was following me around. But I think, you know, for me, you guys know that I always like buy the latest technology and I buy so many gimmicky things. Mm-hmm that I end up using for like, you know, a weekend. I bought one of those little vector robots. 
<laughs> that could pick up the cube and walk around. That was a novelty for an afternoon. It wasn't worth like 200 quid or whatever I spent on it. So uh, I think I need to rein in the novelty spending for a bit. But um, an interesting use of VR and an interesting choice of game. So we'll keep an eye on uh, where Facebook are going in terms of retro games on there. Now, of course, we are, um, at the time this episode comes out, around six weekends left until Christmas now. <laughs> When do you guys start watching Christmas movies? I'm not sure whether Ravi is much of a, you know, a, a home alone kind of guy, but I imagine you are, Joe. For me, my Christmas films jingle all the way just because like, I was like five yeah. when it came <laughs> out and I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and I do love Home Alone. Um, probably around mid-December, my wife's like, let's chuck on some Christmas films. And I'm sure there'll be loads on now. I've got my daughter and she knows, you know, last year she was only a couple of months old, whereas now she's actually wants to watch TV and stuff like that. So yeah, pro- probably soon. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine Ravi. I can't imagine. Mate, I'm, I'm into the new Christmas movies. I'm rocking oh, really? the Christmas Christmas Chronicles, mate. You guys are. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Kurt Russell, mate. There's me watching watching Gremlins, which is a Christmas movie, by the way. Just saying. Yeah, Lethal Weapon. Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. Die Hard. <laughs> But actually, what about this then, if you're into new Christmas movies? This is something that kind of harkens back to the good old days. You know, we first got, everyone remembers that experience of getting their first console on Christmas morning as a kid. It's something that sticks with you forever. And there is a new movie coming out for the holidays called um, 8-Bit Christmas. Now, this is an 80s-era Christmas story, um, and the headline is Nintendo is the only answer. Now, this stars... Neil Patrick Harris, which I think instantly gives it a bit of geek credibility. But shall we listen to a bit of the trailer? Every kid has that one gift they want more than anything for Christmas. This is the story of mine. Bookends? They have baseballs on them. I see that. No, not those. Nintendo. A maze of rubber wiring and electronic intelligence so advanced it was deemed not a video game, but an 8-bit entertainment system. No Nintendo in my house. I second that. Looks like a no-go on Nintendo. I needed a Christmas miracle. Are you making all this up? No, no, no way. It's got all those sounds that every movie trailer has to have in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every action film always does that. <laughs> like, I'm sure that's in there as well. So this, I mean, like you said, Jingle All The Way. It looks like kind of that and A Christmas Story. There's elements of that in there as well. Only thing is, this kind of focuses around the NES. So it's kind of got elements of um, The Wizard in there as well, I think. It's, it's, it's very American, isn't it? Like Because you, oh, yeah. you, you wouldn't have the British kids like, I want an NES because they weren't that popular. Can I have a spectrum, yeah. please, Mum? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> to bring it out as a Hollywood film. I mean, I like the look of it. I've seen it doing the rounds on a lot of retro game, you know, websites and stuff like that. But the reality of it is, is there re- I don't think there is actually that much gaming in it. It's more about the, the Christmas adventure of getting the Nintendo. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think it's going to be an awful lot actual kind of like gaming in it, if that makes sense. Um you know, when it's kind of like, it even says, you know, on HBO, because it's coming out on HBO Max on November 24th. You know, it's yeah. aimed at children and it's aimed at, like, millennials. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's aimed... Yeah, kids and the parents really Yeah, really the like parents it. who can remember the Nintendo and stuff like that. So, you know, I think it, I think it, there was a part in the trailer that really did actually make me laugh. Um, like, you know, really made me, like, laugh out loud kind of thing. So I was like, you know what, I'm, I am going to watch this, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to enjoy it. Um, but you were a little bit more cynical about it, weren't you, Ravi? Surprisingly, considering you said you like <laughs> modern Christmas films. No, no, I, <laughs> I, 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 
I thought, yeah, it's it's based on the Nas, but realistically, the Christmas for like us would be, you know, I want an Atari Jaguar, and then you go and you're like, <laughs> oh man, I'm disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Jag fans. Um, <laughs> I'm but um, my fist at you. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, next year, are they going to do, like, a 16-bit Christmas and then 32-bit Christmas or something? I think they should do the 8-bit Christmas, like you say, but the British version. Yeah. And <laughs> that I, should and be I, next year's. I guess you could apply this to anything as well, because, yeah. like, I remember the Cabbage Patch dolls yeah. was, like, people were ripping out each of his hair. You could have a, a Teletubbies Christmas where people were also going mad over those toys. You know, I think I think there's always one that people lose the Furby it too, but you, yeah yeah, yeah. The Furby, and, and, the Furby walls. and, and this yeah. is the thing the whole jingle all the way is based on that you know it's based on the cabbage patch dolls and the tickle me elmo i think it was you know in the early 90s i remember it was the tracy island for thunderbirds in the 90s oh, yeah, every kid yeah. wanted one and this is this is the worst i've got a good story about that I, me, me and my dad my dad was like, right, I'm going to make your own. And they did a big thing on Blue Peter. Yeah. And and you had to make your own, like, Plaster of Paris. And he forgot to put something in there. I think it was, like, salt or something. And it stank. It was, like, the stinkiest Tracy Island. And he came into my bedroom a couple Why of weeks Why are you playing later. with your Tracy Island, son? <laughs> like, what's that smell? And it's like, it's the Tracy Island we built. <laughs> Didn't get it off the market, did he? Oh, no, he just made the plaster of he Paris himself. And it was just like, oh, God. A oh, paper mache. That was oh, it, yeah. Oh, really bad paper mache. But, I mean, getting back to this movie, I think it, it does look like something you'd see on, like, Channel 5 on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Or, you know, the, the Hallmark Channel. It kind of those, people are saying it in the comments here, kind of those, um, was it New Line? You see a lot of those kind of movies yeah, back in yeah, the late 90s, yeah. early 2000s. It does look like some good, cheesy, nostalgic Yeah, I'm going to watch Obviously, it. the cashing <laughs> in on the eighties thing. Yeah. And, I mean, the fact that it's got, um, the fact that this film actually stars Neil Patrick Harris. And I always remember being a kid and, you know, Doogie Howser actually rocked a pretty cool computer setup. You remember the end of every episode, he'd be there on his uh, blue screen word processor. So, you know, he's, a, he's, he's not a stranger to geek culture. So I think, you know, for people who, um, who grew up in the 80s, I think it is going to be a good little nod back for them and also their kids as well. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of, that's always my best memories of Christmas, getting new systems. I think, you know, for us, it's probably going to be a fun watch. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to hit that nostalgia for so many people, you know, remembering when you got, you know, even not just your Nintendo, remember when you got your N64 or whatever, or, or your Jaguar, do you know what I mean? You know, so I hope it's good. Yeah, if you want to watch it, then it's going to be streaming exclusively on uh, HBO Max or um, websites that I'm sure Ravi knows about that you'll, uh, <laughs> you can get it from. And uh, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now let's go back to virtual reality. You know, we can't get enough of this. This one actually, though, um, it's not an officially sanctioned release. This is a fan mod of Ocarina of Time virtual reality that is now available to play yeah so this is by a modder called um, brian mp16 and essentially he's he's released this this mod for people to download and play um which is a a fully working of the entire game of the full game of ocarina of time vr uh, in vr which is just like insane that somebody's managed to get that you know spent the the time to go back to it. I mean, I know Ocarina of Time is like, you know, a massive Zelda game and, you mm. know, like legendary game. And, you know, there's so many fans out there and stuff like that. But it's just it's just crazy what people are doing with VR at the moment. So he's using something called the Dolphin VR emulator, which has actually been out for a while. 
he, he's essentially just ported the game over to that from from what I understand and it does look really really fluid now don't be too fooled I don't want to use the word fooled but don't be too fooled by the video so he's put out a short video of him of the second to last boss in the game when you're fighting Ganondorf before he transforms and he's mm. he's running around on the treadmill so it's fully playable with the I forget the the actual name for them but it's um is it their Oh, what's it called? The treadmills? Like a VR treadmill. The VR treadmills. There's an actual yeah. word for them, but it completely supports that. So you can run around, you know, Hyrule and run around the fields and everything, you know, which is really, really cool. Um, and then it's got full, supports full head tracking. Um, an omnidirectional treadmill. There we go. I just read it. And then it's got the full support um, with the head tracking and everything, you know, looking around and everything like that. But in the video, he's like swinging his sword with the VR controllers. And then like when he shoots the bow, he like... He's doing it with his hands as if he's shooting a bow. It doesn't like motion control. It doesn't actually support motion control. He's actually just right. pressing the buttons while he does it and getting into it, which I can understand. Like people would get into it, like oh my god, I'm swinging a sword kind of thing. Like while there's like arrows being shot at me and I'm trying to deflect them, energy balls and stuff. But yeah, this looks crazy. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if Nintendo shut it down before we even get yeah, this probably, episode yeah. out. Um, but it looks very playable. He's done some good considerations, like he's increased yeah. the frame rate yeah. and yeah, the yeah. draw distance. Yeah, yeah, ninety FPS. Yeah, ninety FPS. Uh, like Ravi said, he's taken all those things into consideration, um, which would probably help with like motion sickness and stuff like that. Like you know, it wouldn't be because I imagine if you just ported it straight over, it just it'd be quite slow. So yeah, it looks really good, and I can't imagine Nintendo getting on the whole the whole VR thing. I can't imagine them actually releasing it on VR because if, obviously it wouldn't be on a Nintendo console. But it's pretty cool to say the least that you know these games, which are like twenty three years old, still you know people are still modding them and stuff like that for modern gaming. Oh, they have got the um, the VR. You know the the Labo headsets that you can make for the Switch. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen much of it. I mean, that could, I, don't, I doubt it'll work on that. You, you know. can you imagine that the cardboard helmet and everything? <laughs> <laughs> Just for, yeah, I can't imagine it works on there, but it, it looks pretty cool. Um, like I say, it says it's the full game. In in the footage I've seen, he's just fight you know fighting a boss at the end. Um, so I would love to see some footage of them running around and you know in Hyrule Field and stuff like that, but. Having it completely, you know, I was concerned that it was like, oh, you would look around and the head tracking mm. would be like, oh, you turn around and it's black. Do you know what I mean? Like how some of them are. But no, it's got it's got full in-game head tracking, which I think is really, really impressive. And then, like I said, the treadmill running around. So, you know, pretty um, immersive to be running around in the fields and stuff like that, I would say. And there's a comment here actually on... Um the website ZeldaDungeon.net, where we got the story from that I put in our show. Mm-hmm. Someone's actually commented that um, it was actually uh, Miyamoto's original original vision for Ocarina of Time that it would be a first-person view. Oh, really? So really this puts the game back to what his original vision was. Oh, I didn't know game. that. And there we go. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I've got to say, watching, I mean, I'm only watching this little gif they've embedded here. Yeah. And it's always different when you're watching footage of someone else playing VR. It did make me feel a bit motion sick just looking at this gif. <laughs> yeah, it's... A, it's- yeah, it's a bit shaky, but I think that's because he's the guy playing it. It's like, oh, oh my God, like kind of thing, like, you know, trying to run away from energy balls, like, and the floors collapsing underneath him and everything like that. So he's, he is running around like a madman. So I can imagine it being pretty intense, like, to play. And and, and to be honest, these homemade kind of ones always are a bit shaky. And yeah. Stuff like that, <laughs> like, yeah. They're, they're always a bit experimental because you're using different engines and using stuff that it's not really designed to do, but um, still cool. 
Yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah, a lot of work's obviously gone into this. So, uh, like you said, Joe, if you want it, I would get it while you can. Yeah. Because I can't <laughs> imagine it's going to be around very long. Now, obviously, we, you know, as retro collectors, we generally um, buy secondhand systems, you know, and that's the stuff that we still had from when we were a kid. This is quite an interesting story on Wired. It's about retro collectors who are uncovering hordes of old data. So, it's a story here. And actually, um, it talks about a guy called um, Sean Molseed, who um, we're actually going to have on the show. Uh, yeah, Action, um, Action Retro. Retro. Yeah. Great YouTube channel talking about classic Mac stuff as well. And he recently got hold of a power computing uh, PowerWave 604150, um, a Macintosh clone that was sold for just a few months back in 1995. And he turned it on, and there was a file on the desktop called Infectious Diarrhea. Lovely. Turns out that actually the person who bought it off was a medical student oh, okay. who'd done like, you know, research of DNA sequencing and stuff as well. There's so much on there, but it actually talks about how a lot of people are buying these secondhand systems and finding stuff on there that people haven't deleted. And, you know, it could be stuff like the mentioned here. It could be recipes that people have put on there. It could be letters to, you know, friends and family that they haven't deleted. It could be pictures that, you know, often you'll find on these old machines. Um, that, you know, retro gaming and retro computer collectors in particular are finding now because, you know, they're buying these old machines. People haven't wiped out the hard disk on them. Mm. So that made me think, I mean, I remember I got hold of probably around two or three years ago. There was a Pentium 2 PC on Facebook Marketplace. Um, this woman wanted a tenor for it and it had um, a CRT monitor with it as well, which I wanted. I only really wanted it for the monitor. Um, had Windows 95 installed as well. It was like a big old... Um, HP, actually, HP machine. So I bought it. I drove over to Derby to pick it up. Um, I got it back, and she said it belonged to her mum, who recently passed away. But they hadn't deleted the hard disk. And I looked at a couple of files in the documents folder, and it was letters from, like, 1997, 98, that her mum had wrote to their family. Mm. And I actually texted the woman, and I said, there is some uh, some letters on here that I think your mum left on the machine, because obviously your mum had passed away. And I said, you know, do you want me to send them over to you? I can email them over. And she went, oh, don't worry, just delete them. So, oh. But I actually thought, you know, there's, there's a part of a mum's kind of history there that maybe she was interested in seeing, but whether it was just too, you know, raw or something. I thought I we were going to have a really but... sweet Christmas story then. <laughs> 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 no, I don't bother. <laughs> well, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to say, I mean, in a way it did feel a bit, even though it was my computer now and I'd bought it, it felt a bit invasive looking through yeah. someone else's files, if you get what I mean, because they hadn't deleted them. So it's an interesting moral dilemma there, I think. I've I've enjoyed looking like I I've got old Amigas and stuff and I enjoy looking at other people's operating system setups. So it's kinda like, oh, how was he doing that or how was she doing that and like oh are you 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 you're doing the file structure wrong or, or what programs this, you know? And it and it's good to see everybody's different setup because you can like imagine what they were using for it and you can kind of see like a little trace. It is like a weird archaeology kind of thing isn't it uh, mm. looking through older people's stuff but also like um i do remember you mentioning with modern hard drives that you even just put a nail through them and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> whenever i take them yeah out. you're completely right because uh there's some like you know i've done data recovery on some of my older hard drives and stuff and i'm like god you can go years back and you can, you know you're never really deleting stuff properly just kind of getting moved to a different place so uh yeah be wary of that i can imagine there's so many places like schools that have put stuff out or there's there's just so much data out there that, that really shouldn't be out there and there's probably loads of personal stuff uh, it'd be great to hear what uh listeners have actually found on hard drives and stuff um <laughs> that that they've got from old equipment 
Well, they're talking here on this um, article on Wired, and actually there's a guy in here who runs the, um, uh, a computer restoration shop called um, RDKL in Minnesota, and he actually mentions the same thing you did then, Ravi. You said, you know, you often get Amigas or Commodores in, and he loves seeing people's custom operating systems and how people have changed the look of the OS, because each, each one of them represents kind of their concept of what their ideal desktop would look like. But also a period a period of time as well. So it's like, you know, it's like a little snapshot of time where, oh, they're rocking that. I've totally forgot about that. Or, you know, and it's the same with Windows as well. Like if you look at someone's older Windows setup, you'd be like, oh, that's a nice Windows 2000 setup that someone's rocking. Bonsai, bonsai buddy, I've not seen him yeah. for years. I mean, in a way, it is very interesting because particularly like, you know, in the case I mentioned then where that lady had passed away. And actually, I, I don't think I have actually wiped the hard disk. You know, I didn't use the machine. It's just still there. I actually kind of felt like, oh, I, d- I don't want to wipe out what's kind of left of this woman and maybe a daughter will change her mind at some point, even though it was just a couple of letters. Isn't that um, the great idea for a YouTube channel? Just yeah. getting old machines and looking through the hard drives and kind of like yeah, get pretty uh, expensive. seeing what you find. <laughs> yeah, it depends. You could probably get stacks of them for, for cheap. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're saying here as well, I mean, there are some kind of sinister stories as well about people finding stuff like, you know, personal financial information or tax records on there as well. And uh, some people have actually kind of stalked people on social networks after they've found pictures of them on secondhand, you know, laptops have bought and that kind of thing. So, you know, it can be quite scary. And I think, you know, it, it is a lesson learned as well, particularly if you're selling, like maybe, you know, they mentioned here about how Max from like a decade ago, are kind of regaining a bit of value now, actually, you know, probably because they're affordable and still actually quite capable. But people are selling them with, um, you know, you think a laptop that you had 10 years ago, there probably is photos and all that on there as well. And it gets into the wrong hands and, you know, it could potentially be dangerous. So I think there is an important lesson there to, uh, to wipe your data if you're getting rid of any old machines, even though it kind of ruins the fun for, you know, those of us who like to have a little sneak around and look <laughs> at them, I think. Now, before we get into our chat with uh, Anthony and Nicola Caulfield talking about the ZX Spectrum, this incredible new movie they've got, um, a system that we don't talk about all that much on this podcast, though we have done um, a couple of episodes all about it. Trip Hawkins, of course, came on, Trip Hawkins, a couple of years ago, um, who was the father of the 3DO, of course. And the 3DO is a system that I do like, because I always remember drooling over the 3DO, as a kid, I mean, it was like this uh, $699 system that I didn't think I ever had a cat in hell's chance of ever owning one. Um, managed to get one in the last decade or so. The game library, although it hasn't got the best games, there is a st- few little standout gems on there as well. Something that may have changed the 3DO's fortunes back in the day would have been if a game like Tomb Raider came out on it, which obviously never happened. But now it turns out there is a playable alpha version of Tomb Raider for the 3DO. Yeah, this is pretty amazing because like to be honest i i've not i've not known that much about the 3do and i know everybody always says it's a powerful machine and uh being able to see tomb raider kind of running on it and it's 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 running all right it's not been optimized or anything um this is an open source implementation of tomb raider called open lara so there was a project before which was called open tomb and that kind of enhanced the graphics and added additional features uh, Open Lara is a project uh, to do it on cross-platform open source for Tomb Raider 1 to 5. And um, it's actually been ports for like the RG350, uh, Xbox, um, people looking at doing Dreamcast ones. Um, you know, there's there's ports all over the place with this Open Lara. So um, it seems pretty cool that they've actually got it running and, and maybe they'll optimise it and also implement other other free ports and stuff and uh I, i'm just amazed to kind of see this running 
on a 3DO and uh, there's a beautiful little video of it and it's in alpha at the moment so mm. you know it's 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 early stages of uh, this kind of port but I can imagine they can get it running at a pretty decent speed to be honest yeah I was going to say the only thing about it really is it's the frame rate and it's a yeah. little bit glitchy with some of the textures you know as you pass them some of them kind of blacking out and stuff like that but you know like you say it's not been up opti- considering it's not been optimized or played with too much it, it is run it's it's definitely playable it's definitely running do you know what i mean yeah and i think you know it's interesting who's behind this as well now this is a, a guy called uh, timo gagiv okay. i believe you pronounce his name he actually works for um uh, sperisoft okay so he's kind of the uh their lead on rendering, their lead rendering developer. Um, he's worked on loads of AAA games. Saints Row, the third remaster. Oh, okay. He was a lead uh, graphics programmer on there. So he's got a good background in doing, you know, 3D graphics. And in his spare time, he, you know, plays around with Tomb Raider ports on the Open Lara engine. Um, so he's a guy behind this port here. But like you said, I mean, you look at, look at this video here, which I'll link in our show notes. Um, there is parts of it where it runs quite nicely. You get a bit of action going on, then it stutters a bit, and there are parts where it completely freezes. But like you said, it is an early alpha version of it. I think the fact that, you know, the 3DO came out in 1993, I want to say. And in terms of power, I mean, it wasn't anywhere near as powerful as stuff like the, the Saturn and the PlayStation 1, I believe. So I think, you know, the fact that it runs as well as it does on there already without optimizations is, you know, testament to, to how good this um, this port is. And it was running like alone in the dark and stuff, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh, originally. So it did do that kind of 3D stuff, but... Um, yeah, the basic polygon 3D. Yeah, but it's just like, wow, Tomb Raider. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that was actually shared by one of our patrons in Discord. So thanks so much, guys. Now we're going to be chatting to Anthony Nicola Caulfield in just a moment, a little celebration of the ZX Spectrum celebrating 40 years next year and their amazing new documentary, The Rubber Keyed Wonder, which is going to be the definitive documentary all about the Spectrum. Let's give a big thank you to another sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, and this is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking your baggage in at the airport without a lock. Now, obviously, you think, you know, you put it through that conveyor belt thing, you think it's going to be kept private, but you never know who's going to be going through your stuff. So having a VPN means that when you go online, you know, your internet service provider normally can actually see every single website that you visit. And actually, we've we've talked about this on the show before. There are stories of ISPs, particularly in America, who legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies, tech giants as well, who will then use this information to data target advertising at you. So if you go online with a VPN, it means you can browse anonymously by using ExpressVPN. The ISP can't see what you're doing online. Your identity is anonymized as well by their secure VPN server, and they encrypt your data for maximum protection as well. And I I mean, ever since I've known you, Ravi, you've been a massive supporter of VPNs, and I know ExpressVPN is one that you personally use. Yeah, so like, you know, people are starting to go to different places at the moment. They're starting to go to different countries again. And uh, I know I've got some planned for next year. And, you know, going to like random hotels, connecting to networks, you don't know if that hotel has secured its network enough. Uh, You don't know if it's even that hotel's network. It could be something completely fake. And, you know, ExpressVPN just kind of helps protect you in that sense like you know do you find this when you go on holiday dan that you're massively reliant on wi-fi like if you haven't paid for the local kind of uh, phone service or you haven't got a local sim card you're so reliant on wi-fi well you can have express vpn on your phone 
and you can just fire that up and whichever network you're connected to then you're kind of connected directly to the vpn uh which is absolutely awesome and uh you never know who's kind of spying on you with that stuff well, that's true because, I mean, especially now, I think, you know, a lot of roaming charges are coming back in for for us, you know, British visitors who go to Europe. So it's more important than ever to get on Wi-Fi. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right, the amount of coffee shops and that I've been to with, like, you know, completely open Wi-Fi, you know, when I've been on holiday, you know, not secured in the slightest. And it could be some guy in the corner, like, you know, with a, a little interceptor in there kind of yeah, sniffing all the traffic the and everything yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, these attacks are easily done. And ExpressVPN works on, you know, all your devices, your phone, your laptop, even your router as well. So that means everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. Dead easy to use as well. Fire up the app, click one button, and it's really quick too. I mean, you know, Ravi, you you often have it on, don't even realise that you're running the VPN. got it on now. Well, exactly. So um, secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash retro. Now, if you use our exclusive link, you will get three months free of ExpressVPN. And of course, support the podcast by doing it. That's expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their support of our show. Now, of course, last week, um, our patrons got to check out episode 300 being streamed in real time. Um, that was so much fun as well. And that is just one thing, you know, that we offered exclusively to our patrons. And they actually got the episode early. They got the video version of it early as well. Because the reason that we have a patron is really to ensure that we can keep bringing this podcast out for you week in, week out. And we can't emphasize enough just how important patron is to us. It's It's awesome. And, you know, we've got a community and that kind of... That that re- really was evident last week, and uh, yeah. we do these meetups. Uh, that you, you know, you get a lot of stuff for your patronage. You get an ad free episode as well, um, and you get the after hours podcast where we're talking behind the scenes, and uh, you know, we're also talking about our memories and the kind of history of gaming. You also get a meetup, and the meetup is absolutely fantastic. It's like uh, many people have said, it's like a kind of pub. Or, you know, um, everybody's just sitting around or, or like a gaming club or something like that. And like a user group, I also Yeah, a user group. That's a good way of putting it. And we kind of sit around. We all talk about computers. We talk about uh, what we've picked up, like uh, so many random topics. And it's it's just really nice to have the support of everyone. And I think it really has become like a, a little community. Yeah, and we'd love it if you would join us on there as well. I mean, you know, I think our lowest one is like $3.99 a month, you know, so you can support the show. Um, all patrons get the usual episode ad-free. You get it early as well most weeks too. Um, you get invited to the Hangouts. So we're going to be doing one um, a week on Sunday. So that's going to be Sunday the 21st of November at 8pm UK time. We'll just hang out on a Sunday night for a couple of hours, you know, crack up a couple of beers and have a bit of a chat. It's all so much fun. So if you'd like to join us for that, and of course, then we are going to be doing uh, the next episode of our patrons' exclusive podcast the retro hour after hours i think we're doing a dreamcast special aren't we oh yes yeah we are yeah that's always we love doing the deep dives in consoles so uh, that's going to be a real interesting episode to do as well so if you want to get access to that and everything else join us on patreon and of course you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the retro hour hall of fame and a big thank you to our latest patrons pika sarima steady eddie eric carl bate and james wilde who all join us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link right now in our show notes at theretrohour.com. 
So massive thank you for checking out the news this week. There will be more next Friday. And right now, let's get into a celebration of the rubber-keyed wonder, the ZX Spectrum, with our special guest, Anthony and Nicola Caulfield. They're next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show, where we welcome on our very special guests, and it is two dear friends of the show who we've had on several times because we're always really busy and making incredible documentaries about our amazing industry. This is Nicola and Anthony Caulfield, of course, the makers of From Bedrooms to Billions trilogy, and now they're working on the definitive documentary about the Sinclair Spectrum. So, welcome back to the show, Nicola and Anthony. How are you? Hello there, we're good, thanks. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having us on. It's amazing to be back on again. Yeah, really nice to catch up with you. Obviously, I mean, we've been talking before we recorded then. I mean, the world, you know, obviously has changed so much over the last um, 18 months or so. But I know your most recent movie, last time we had you on, was um, Bedroom Stabilians of PlayStation Years. I mean, you know, before we get into the Spectrum stuff, how did that go then? Did that get a good reception? It seemed to. Um, it, it seemed to have gone down really well with uh, with people. It was uh, it, uh, one of the things I found quite amusing was when it came out. We kept noticing people writing and saying, "I couldn't believe how in depth it was," and mm. I was worried before it came out that it wasn't in depth enough. And you sort of think, "Thank God, I was you know I was dragged off that." I, that I knew cute, it was in depth enough. That quality assurance. <laughs> two, yeah. two and a half hours. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. It, it, the reception went down um, really well. We got a lovely message from Mark Cerny. Um, obviously, architect of the PS4 and PS5, and and he's um, he he. We've got to know him really well over the years. Actually, he's been a real supporter right from the original, from bedrooms to billions. And there's been a few little things like that. But the PlayStation community, from what we understand, has has enjoyed it at least. Yeah, definitely, uh, quite a challenging film to make because we obviously had to interview people all across the world, um, and then obviously there's a lot more Japanese contributors in in that film as well so yeah that was that was really good everyone was fantastic to work with weren't they um but it's just obviously setting up interviews in japan is a little bit more complicated but but all good and we got some wonderful people hideo kojima took over a year he was our matthew Mm. smith of the film because (laughs) we sort of said when we did the original from bedrooms matthew smith took over a year of gentle discussion texting emailing and um eventually um he agreed and it providing it was in a place that he felt comfortable in which is the arcade he grew up in as a well not grew up in sorry that he visited as a child mm. and um with Hideo Kojima I think it was just a case of of letting his people know that we were this was the real deal and that we were sort of looking to do something sort of relatively celebratory of, of the PlayStation and the, the funny thing is both the Amiga is the second film in the trilogy and the PlayStation Revolution they came about kind of because when we made the first film, which though it was UK focused, we sort of felt that they were there were two massive sort of tangents that were naturally sort of coming away from that first film. We had so many developers when we were making the original film back in sort of between 2012 and 2014 of uh, saying to us about the Amiga and the PlayStation and how they were certainly with the Amiga. There was so many developers saying they used it as a, as a way of developing games. So even though it wasn't, Though obviously in Europe the Amiga was a commercial success, what we were yeah. also interested in was how it, it became such a key development tool. And we also noticed the same thing with the PlayStation, that there was this part that we felt that we would need to come back and give it a sort of dedicated feature. And people could say this about the, the Mega Drive Genesis and the NES and the SNES, and that no one is de- saying that they're not important systems and, and, and everything else. But I think when you want to make a film on something, you kind of want to know that you've got a, a really key story to tell. 
and you want to do something which is going to you know have amazing nostalgia in it but just get get below that that, that top line digs down a little bit deeper in, into it well, i think um i mean you, you mentioned before about you know how you like to go in depth and you know i watched the like i've watched all of your your documentaries you know two and a half hours it just flew by because it was so interesting and i think you know you mentioned about systems that are really important i mean talking about your new movie that's coming up the uh, about the sinclair zx spectrum i mean what's kind of your background with the spectrum then I'm I'm the Spectrum person. <laughs> um, right. I, I absolutely love my Spectrum. Um, it's just got really, really lovely memories for me. I remember going with my mum and dad and my brother to go and buy it, and uh, and it was just such a wonderful time. I don't know. I just look back on it and think, wow, to go and buy this was amazing because we we didn't have anything like that, and uh, and I just love it. I absolutely love it, and I would spend hours lying on my front in my mum and dad's front room, craning my neck up at the TV and doing type-in listings, and I had a little um, a book on BASIC and, and all sorts of things, and I'd never done anything like that, and uh, I just I just loved it. And, um, and I've still got all my games as well. I've not got loads, but I've still, I've still got them, still got my original Spectrum, and, uh, yeah... I, I love it. And it's just the fit. It's funny when um, we were talking about what to, to name the film as well. Um, Anthony was writing a, a paragraph that was going to go into our Kickstarter. And, uh, and we hadn't totally, we'd had so many names we were kind of banding around. And then Ant wrote a sentence that said, like the wonderful rubber keyed spectrum. And we were like, that actually works. That's a really nice name. <laughs> because that's it, you know, for me, I always think of the rubber keys, you know. I, yeah, I love it. I can't praise it enough. <laughs> I think for me it was a um, – you see, I, I grew up with a Commodore 64, and before people immediately switch off in disgust um, – well, or the opposite. Um, the, um, though they can't switch on if they're already on, but, yeah, you get the idea. They, they, they had I, – I was very lucky to get the Commodore 64 because I, I wasn't from a particularly well-off family, and um, my dad – in 1983, got a job working for a company called Music Sales, and Music Sales were had a contract to supply music software for the Commodore 64 directly to to Commodore. So on his first day, I just said to him, um, "Oh, please, can you try and get a, a get a computer on your first day?" And he said, "I can't go into the office on the very first day and, and get a computer." And of course, that went out the window because that very that night he came home and said, "Do you want to come out and help me with something from the car?" And there it was, Commodore 64 disk drive, monitor, everything, but no tape deck. And that he didn't think that was a big issue. It was a big issue because it's, it was weeks before we could get any games because no one had any games at school. But everybody I knew at school, everyone, all my close friends, everybody, they were all using Spectrums. So mm. for me, in a funny sort of way, I was actually, because I'd be going around their houses, I was using the Spectrum the same amount as the Commodore. The Commodore was at home, but no one I knew had a Commodore 64 because the price was that much more expensive. I know it eventually came down, but I think that's probably a key aspect of this, obviously of the spectrum. And yeah. I remember Charlie Brooker um, said a few years ago, he, he called the spectrum the people's computer. And I think he's absolutely right. It, it, was a, it was that availability. It was at a price that most people could afford and it and it just was a gateway for children to get access to something that really, if you go back a few years earlier into the 70s, into the late 70s, if you were looking to buy an Apple II, even back then it was two grand. It was 2,000 quid. The same, the, the Atari 800 was 1,000, 
And even the Commodore 64, when it came out, was way above the cost of the Spectrum. But for £125, which, you know, even even today, uh, sorry, even back then, that, that, you know, it wasn't cheap as chips, but it was certainly extremely cheap. And it became, it, it, it put that thought in people's heads of maybe we can just get that, whether it be for homework or anything else, but maybe we can just get that. So for me, everyone I knew at school had a, had a spectrum. So I grew up, as far as I'm concerned, I grew up with one as well. And I loved it. I wasn't one of those people that, that looked at it and laughed at it, color clash. There was all these stupid playground arguments we used to have back then about which one was better and, and everything else. But when I met Nicola in 1990, um, she, we sort of, it was funny. I was still using the Commodore 64 though. I'd sort of briefly migrated to, a, to a, an Atari ST, but we'll talk about that another time. And, and it was just wonderful. Nicola was a really passionate, um, spectrum head. And, um, and it really, I, I think it really always felt like it was, it was both of our machines. I mean, now we married her, uh, I married her and obviously I've, I've now owned 50% of it, yeah. which is a, <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> I'm 50% your Commodore 64. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the name is really, really great, the uh, Rubber Keyed Wonder. And you're completely right. The um, Spectrum was kind of, due to its price range, it was available for everyone. And uh, Nicola, did you find that, like, games were a lot cheaper and that there was a, a kind of accessibility to games that you wouldn't have had on another system? I remember going in sweet shops and they'd be like by the tills just a little tapes and I thought well, I can actually afford them um, the and the yeah. uh, and my mum used to my mum used to be in a book club and uh it was called like the leisure circle or something like that and they started selling um games so you could um but and they'd be like books with the games and everything so I remember mum getting them for me that way as well but I don't remember them being particularly expensive and um and I just you know, I've got one, I've got some in front of me, and one of them is called German is fun and French is fun. Uh, and but you I, used those, didn't you? I did, I did. I think it was just because it was something different. I thought, oh, I can actually learn to speak another language. I didn't really learn much from it because I got preoccupied with doing other things. And I am going to mention the game that I always bore Anthony with, which I've never heard anyone ever say that they know or have played well, so maybe i bought the only copy in the sweet shop which was called chamber of horrors um and i i love it it's certainly a shocker <laughs> i'll tell you that it's not it's a really hard game to play but um i've never heard, i'm looking that up now yeah i haven't played that one before <laughs> 1984 omega software yeah. yeah omega software yeah. yeah i've got i've got in front of me grid runner uh galaxians 4d arcade adventure you know, I've not seen that Galaxians before. I just yeah. want to have a look at it quickly, actually. Germany's the old one, glasses uh, are going on. Was it the gold collection? I've got one, the Lord of the Rings. So that was a book and that was a game with it in this world. It can't be an official. Sorry, there's a little bit of genuine discovery going on here because <laughs> looking at this, another great arc. This is what it says on it. it oh, it's Arctic. Yeah. Arctic. I didn't see this before. Arctic Computing. So that's, um, um, oh, my God, Charles Cecil. So that would, mm. uh, he might have been involved in this. Grid Runner was Salamander Software. It's obviously, and uh, it's called Galaxians. It can't be official. Hand-drawn cover. Another great arcade game for the 16K Spectrum. And it's literally a hand-drawn cover in colour. Wow, that is amazing. Sorry, this is sort of dead <laughs> air, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying to be visual here with the... Tri- trrivial Pursuit there. Look well. at that label. Even, even just hearing the sound of the tapes <laughs> being handled this is, this is nostalgic noise, for me. Yeah. Anyone oh, recognise that, that noise? <laughs> well, well, here we go. I, this is where it's Oh, and this one as well. This, this one, really? 
This is a slightly bigger one. This must have come from the uh, book club that my mum was in. You know, you mentioned then about where you'd get games from. And actually back then, I mean, they were very affordable and you can often get them at places like I remember, obviously, Boots sell them here in the UK. Um, You could get them in like um, service stations and that kind of thing too, like you said, a sweet shop. So it did really feel like they were very accessible to everybody, which I guess was kind of the the goal of Sinclair, you know, to really get it into the user's hands. Not a first um, though. Don't forget, it was not, I know what you mean. That's, that's the point. It, le- it led to that. But at first, you see, the thing is you could get your spectrum, so you're spending £100-odd. Pounds. Once you were able to learn to program, and most people's first games were arcade rip-offs because it's the easiest way to learn, is to say, I really like Pac-Man or I really like, I really like the Galaxians in this case, um, and I'm gonna, and you replicate that. And in, in doing that, you, you've, you, you are learning a lot of the fundamentals of programming and then you work out what went wrong. But, and then you were often putting those adverts into the early magazines in the early 1980s in the hope that you would sell something. And if you maybe got five or six sales, you ran the copies off yourself and you might have made yourself 25 pounds, 30 pounds. And it was like, away, oh, that was it, off you went. And, and it was that, the, the barrier of entry was almost non-existent. It was just the barrier of entry was the purchase price of the ZX Spectrum and a, and a cassette recorder. The rest of it came from the ingenuity of, of making things. I know we covered some of this ground in, in From Bedrooms to Billions, but um, it was really like that, where there wasn't that distribution of games. Boots, WH Smiths, they all came slightly later as we sort of go further into the 1980s. But prior to that, it was people doing it on their own and making their own and dubbing their own cassettes. And even little, and one of the, some of the little things that we missed in the original from bedrooms, and we'd edited up these very long sequences was on, um, was on basically things like if you want to mass produce cassettes in 1982, how did you do it? Well, you think, well, I'll go to where, where a record company mass produces their cassettes. And then you do that and they give you a price. And then you find out that the audio quality of the recording isn't good enough for computer code, it doesn't. Games mm. won't load. It's okay for audio cassettes for music, but it's not suitable for. And all these things, those early developers and publishers in the UK had to work out. Um, and starting to buy more uh, bigger replication machines for you know being able to do twenty five cassettes on the go, and eventually two hundred, and then five hundred. And and as as popularity of games rose, the need to create more content and more um, and more availability of the cassettes and everything increased with it. But but the spectrum was that sort of that watershed moment where suddenly you, you've thrown all these seeds out there to all these potential developers, these wannabe developers who haven't even, don't even realise they're going to be game developers yet. They just simply there's something about this obsession to program, to use the computer, to get their fingers on those keys. Um, and we're not going to talk about the rubber keys too much because obviously that went <laughs> that they, that changed later. But it really was a huge moment. Um, and that's why I always respected the fact that Charlie Charlie Brooker called it the people's computer because that's what it that's what it always felt like thing, to me. Like you're saying about um, the sound of the tapes. The other thing I used to love was when um, it, the sound of the of the game loading up on the little tape deck, and then if it made a certain sound, you think, oh, it's not loading. So I'd adjust the little screw in the top and my little precision screwdriver, and then I think, oh, it's loading, and I'd go and sit somewhere else for six or seven minutes while it was loading. And you know, that is the difference between the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. On the Spectrum, you could hear the data yeah. over the TV speakers. You could hear it squealing like a fax machine or a dial-up modem, it yeah. sounded like, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think there was also a sense of if it loaded, it loaded. If it didn't, it didn't. It, it was almost like you knew that this whole thing was sort of work in progress. 
not, not I'm not necessarily I'm not don't mean that about the spectrum so much. I just mean the entire hobby, the whole thing. Well, the whole process yeah. you enjoyed. Yeah, you didn't sort of snap the cassette in yeah. half in fury or run back to boots and sort of yeah. you know and and go and get really upset with the with the salesperson there. You kind of knew that, that there was you know things took time and and that this was a sort of hobby that was growing. Well, at least that's how I felt at the time. Mm. Um, and certainly oh, as games got more and more popular you know it got it then we put more demands if anything on this on the developers that we once certain once we learned things like parallax scrolling all sorts of other things that that sort of came out through through the 80s as as um as arcade game um conversions got better and we started and developers started to learn more tricks with the spectrum we started seeing far more impressive games making more more use of it as everyone started to learn off everybody else well, famously, uh, Clive Sinclair wasn't wasn't a fan of gaming himself, but um, he recently passed away, and it's the 40th anniversary of the Specky. Um, yeah, I know you've always wanted to do this film, but did you kind of feel this was the right time to do it now? Yeah, the decision came fairly quickly. Yeah, we-, we were we've um, what, what one thing that we always found with our films is there is so many different areas that we could go off into and go in much more depth. So we kind of knew that when we were making from bedrooms, we thought, oh, we could really go into, we could do a film, a standalone film on the spectrum, a standalone film on the C64. We can do all sorts of different films. So this is kind of us now going back and thinking, right, okay, at all them points, now we are going to do those standalone films. Um, so we have been talking about doing one on the Commodore 64. Um, and we were talking about basically both of them at the same time. Done a lot of work yeah. on the C64 one, um, actually. And then when Sir Clive Sinclair passed away and with the 40th anniversary coming up as well, and I think we thought, you know, let, let's start with the Spectrum. And um, and then our next one we're hoping is going to be the uh, Commodore 64. So um, it just, just seemed right, you know, to do this. And we've got so much footage that has not been seen from, from bedrooms with people talking about the Spectrum as well, that we'd like to get some of that footage into the film as well. I think the other thing was that we were the PlayStation Revolution was very very hard to make. Uh, it was extremely tough. Uh, you know, I won't go into huge detail, but it, it, it not because people were were hard to work with or anything. It was just the fact that we were filming all over the place, and yeah. it was and dealing with the Japanese just takes so much more time to get what you want and get it in the way. And we've got, I mean, even with the PlayStation revolution, we've got so much material left over. It's and ridiculous. You're still dealing, even like with the PlayStation revolution, you're dealing with um, topics that are very current games that are very yeah. current um, and trying to get into different companies. And that it's just a little bit more complicated. Like with resident um, evil, because it's a current brand, everything has to go back through Capcom to make sure that, you know, just to make sure we're not saying anything that's not correct or anything like that. However, I will say this once the Japanese are on board with what you're doing, they they go all in. It's fantastic. They'll they'll go above and beyond for you. So that don't don't think that when I say that it's difficult dealing with the Japanese, I don't mean that they're difficult people. I just mean that it just once they trust you and they understand what you're doing, it then it's the opposite. They go way overboard, which is fan- that, with that enthusiasm and everything. But when we were when we were working out, we we spent quite a lot of this year working on the Commodore sixty four project, and we sort of we. And we we knew that that we were going through loads and loads of material from the original from bedrooms and the Amiga years and even some PlayStation Revolution stuff. And there was all this stuff on the spectrum that was coming out as well. And we we sort of felt like with everything that's been going on in the world, 
the idea of, we kind of felt like we wanted to come home. Does that make any sense? It's like yeah, yeah. the spectrum, it, it really is a big deal. It's 40th anniversary next year is a big deal. We're, you know, we're from this country and we kind of feel that, feel it as well. And as much as we, as we love the Commodore 64, yes, it's also hitting an anniversary, but we kind of felt, and then Sir Clive passed away and it, uh, we were a bit upset because, well, I know a lot of people were upset, but we were upset also because we thought we're never going to get to meet him or interview him. You know, he was like, we'd asked him for, to, when we were making From Bedrooms to Billions and he politely declined. And we kind of felt when Alan Sugar declined as well, we sort of thought, well, well let's not go for people like that then because we don't want to have one without the other. So, um, And then we sort of felt a bit sad about that. And Rick Dickinson as well, also passing away a couple of years ago. And he's someone we also wanted to wanted to meet. Um, so we sort of thought, let's do the Spectrum. Let's stop the Commodore 64 project and just literally go in and do this Spectrum film. And there's a couple of fundamental differences about this project from our um, previous ones. We are we are sticking fast to the running time of 80 minutes. Uh, mm. We we feel strongly about that, and and the reason is is we got a lot of people saying over the years, uh, sort of, so I will watch the Amiga years. Oh, you enjoy it? Yeah, I'm halfway through it, or I'm you know I've just started it, or I've got to finish the last part next week, or or something like that, which is lovely. But we sort of thought, let's do something that most people can sit and watch in one sitting that, that don't, right. you know, <laughs> let's be honest, let's do something that's 80 minutes and then we'll have all lots of featurettes and other things. So we can still have, you know, in theory, three hours of content there, but we'll have a, an 80 minute main feature because then people can sit through it in one go and then we're free to explore other topics in the, in the featurettes. And the other thing that we want to be different with this film is we want to have a voiceover. So it means that we can get through subject matter that a little bit quicker. And uh, there's a couple of other little things we've got planned, which we're hoping to reveal in our in our Kickstarter campaign over the next 10 days, certainly around the anniversary of the 23rd of April 2022. We're sort of, we've got a special sequence that we've got planned for the film um, on, the, on that date. But um, you will have to back the Kickstarter to find out what that is. But um, that's, um, that's something we're working on in, in the background at the moment. But we sort of felt that we want to make it we want to make it a bit shorter and we want to have a voiceover for this one so it feels like a different different film from from the others but it's still got all the nostalgia and the archive that we love we love putting in as well so it will still feel like the others we hope well, I know previously they've been very interview based your previous movies I mean is this going to be kind of similar and who have you spoken to for the movie? Um, I can't, I'm not going to go through the interview list just as of yet. It's mainly because we're still at that point where, because we're funding the film, um, yeah. there's still people that we're trying to, we're trying to get, but there's. And the idea is to do, um, we've got some archive that we want to use because um, when it came to the footage that we put in the original films, you know, it's really just touched on some people it's been like maybe five minutes of a three-hour interview so we want to use some of that to get it into the film and then um we've outlined a f yeah a few more interviews but yeah we can't go into exactly who they'll be at the moment we don't um, tend to do that you yeah. see because it kind of it's not that we're being evasive but it's it kind of puts pressure on somebody if we name names um we have spoken to some people already but i think the idea is that once we start shooting um but the the shooting window for this film is is going to be between January and May, so we are. Um, and what we tend to do is we shoot in clumps. So we'll, we'll arrange some interviews, film, just in case little things come out of those interviews. Because what we've discovered so far with this film is that um, there's a whole part of the of the clone story, which is it's kind of it's not that it's not been told or it's not. You have to search around to sort of find it. But we didn't quite realise exactly how major 
the the clones part of the spectrum was and how so popular. places like russia and uh you poland. know they had soviet uh clones didn't they and poland and czech, stuff like that czech republic brazil brazil yeah um portugal um spain italy We've had loads of people write to us about about this and the different clones, haven't they? And we didn't realise quite how big it was. Argentina. Yeah. It's and wow. um, what we're interested to find out is when we put the numbers together, there's a there's a high chance it outsold the Commodore sixty four. Um, but we won't know that until we've really not that we're trying to prove anything. But I think the point is is that we tend to think certainly as Brits we tend to sort of think UK ZX Spectrum UK computer and it may be sold a few others in Europe but obviously when when you really get down to it and you you're looking at numbers in the 5 and 6 millions in other countries you're like whoa okay this is um this is a lot different that we've got to really explore explore this in more detail or at least make sure it's it's appropriately covered in the film well one thing that i saw that you guys wanted to do was actually recreate uh, the experience of using the zx spectrum and hardware and kind of the TVs how, how are you going to go about this and are you going to get like old school CRTs and have someone sitting down and uh, going through tape loading up. To recreate my front That's exactly room. right. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. In fact, Jim Bagley said to me the other day when we were talking about it, because we want to have some, we're doing some round table stuff as well. So we want to have sequences in the film that take us away from just interviews. So there's a round table we're planning on the anniversary day, for example, on the 23rd. But the recreation that you're talking about is like a, a typical what would have been a child developer's bedroom in, in the 80s. And Jim Bagley said, make sure that the, that the, the, the TV is on, a, TV, is on a, a stand higher than the bed. So, it just look, so it's even more ergonomically wrong. Because that's ultimately, he, he said, that's how mine was. And I was at a crick in my neck. And I think Nicola was talking, when you were talking earlier about doing your typing listings. Yeah, your, I remember your team. Yeah. So it's all my, Mark Healy said the same thing to me about the Commodore. He said, we all sat in terrible positions back then to do our coding. And there's a clip in from Bedrooms to Billions of a guy using a BBC micro with a cup of tea. Um, to the and he's sitting sideways to the television, so he's tight. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, to crane his <laughs> neck round sort of almost sixty degrees um, to look at this TV. But we, we, I think mine was the same. I think my television was on a shelf, two yeah. or th- at least maybe what four or five foot above my head. So I had to literally yeah. almost never, look never straight had up, like a desk or anything. It was yeah, always on the floor. I, up. I, yeah. I keep ergonomics and stuff it. didn't exist back then, no. did it? No. I mean, I, I remember you know, I used to use my Commodore Plus Four. I had on like a really bad fuzzy CRT via RF. Probably the yeah, I'm the only person in my family who ever needed glasses. I imagine it's because of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's kind of what we want to achieve with the um, with this bedroom idea, this this developer's bedroom, and we just build a build a set and um, have it. We've already worked out. We're probably going to do it in Cambridge at the museum. I've uh, been chatting with the um, with the curator over there, and he's really keen. So we're probably going to set it there, and then we can have to do some interviews there and do some hands-on stuff and kind of see what we come up with. So we want to do a couple of these sequences where we're not entirely sure what's going to happen, but we might get some really, really nice material. Yeah, so- I mean, the main like thrust of the film will be talking heads. Um, but, yeah, there's just these other sequences we, we've been talking about. There's quite a few. Um, they don't always come off. Um, but sometimes they do, you know, it's just an experiment a little bit. Um, but we really like the idea of recreating that kind of setup because I know a lot of people that I speak to say, oh, yeah, I remember that. 
So, um, and we always like to tap into that nostalgia bit. And if I was looking at it and think, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. So we thought that would be quite nice. By the way, I, I, I also feel, I hope I didn't come across as evasive when, I, when you asked us about interviews. It's, it's only, we've always said that. We don't tend to say because we don't want to put pressure. But I am going to say oh, one yeah, thing because yeah. I do want pressure put on this chap or these chaps um, is um, we, every, everything we ever do, well, from bedrooms, certainly, and now this one, we get comments saying, why don't you ever interview the Stampers? Why don't you ever interview the Stampers? As if we go, oh, oh, that's an idea. We'd never thought of that. Um, sorry, that sounds very facetious. But it, we, of course, we would like to interview Chris and Tim Stamper. Of course, Ultimate is a, is a crit- would be a critical interview. They are very media shy, and we fully respect that. And I'm, I'm sure there's been a lot of journalists over the years that have been trying to, trying to interview them. And we will, of course. Including us. Yeah, exactly. And we will try. <laughs> Um, we will do our very best to, um, and and even even if it was Tim talking about his his wonderful graphics, how he was able to use the. So even if it wasn't a um, a, a full look over Ultimate, even if it was just more on a graphical basis, Tim did some stunning artwork, and um, we'd love him in the film, even if he was even even if it was just himself talking about his artwork. So if you're listening, Tim. Um, we will be we will be continuing to try and persuade you to be in in it. So uh, yeah, there you go. You never know who's listening. You see, so I, I just thought it was worth a worth a punt. I, I find it interesting you mentioned the art scene there as well because you know there was actually art and music that was made on the spectrum. Are you going to be covering that then? And was that much of a scene on that platform? Yeah, I mean it, we are covering it, absolutely, yeah. and I think music is another is another aspect where people the let's say the uh, the the uninitiated. Um, of the spectrum, and I'm perhaps um, looking at Commodore 64 fans, uh, uh, <laughs> possibly there, where they just write off themselves no music down on the spectrum, which isn't true. Um, there, there was a lot of great music that came later. I mean, even Matthew Smith himself um, created that wonderful piece of, well, I, I think it is um, for Manic Minor. You know, having actually when you when you consider how primitive the audio capabilities of that first spectrum was, to be able to get it to play a tune. That that's a feat. That's an amazing feat in in its own right. And the spectrum did evolve musically. And certainly there was a, there was an art scene. Uh, there was an art scene on several platforms across the eighties on the you know that were being shared on the very primitive internet at the time. And um, so yes, it will be covered because again it, it helped fuel the hobby. There was even the magazines we've 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 talked about before. Magazines, the artwork, the music scene, all of it helped fuel the hobby itself, and it grew. And that's how that's how the games industry grew because at first of all it was a a few geeky loving lovingly geeky people sharing stuff sharing games and programs around and then it got more and more popular and it got more and more commercial as it went so yeah all those aspects that helped fuel the fuel the industry we do like to cover. Will, will you cover stuff like the um, Cheetah Spectrum add-on? Yes, yes, we've got one over there actually. Oh, nice. the, the add-ons, the add-ons are really important. Funny enough, we, um, we, before the interview started, I think we talked about um, Bandersnatch, and obviously um, mm-hmm. Imagine. We're trying to create create an add-on. I believe Microgen. We're trying to create an add-on, and add-ons were important because, again, it, exactly as we just said, they help grow the whole the whole um, the whole thing. And um, and being able to expand the spectrum and have lots of lots of other things. I mean, joysticks and the way they evolved um, or broke. I think yeah, but yeah, we're going to cover the music, the graphics, the magazines, typing listings. I think we'll we'll look into again. Well, they were they were a way. I mean, so many people once they first got. I think when you first got your your Spectrum, 
the way of doing it, like buying a magazine and doing a listing kind of helped you connect with it. It was oh, almost the way of all day made you feel it, like you were doing something worthwhile with it at first, rather than just playing games. And that's another thing I've noticed. We've we've asked people to when they've backed the campaign, we want to have fans in this film. And what we mean by fans is people talking about what it was about the spectrum because it was our you know when you talk about a generational thing, this was our rock and roll. You know, for anybody born born in the late 60s or in the 70s, the this uh, the microchip generation and, and the generation that grew up through the 80s with the Spectrums and the Commodores and others, this was our rock and roll. This was our this was our thing um, that, that meant something to, to our generation. And the way that we... So we wanted to try and collect some of those other stories from fans. So not necessarily anybody famous, just, just what it meant to you. When did you get it? What did it mean to you? What was the first things you did with it? Why did it mean so much? Why did you carry on? Why why was it not something that you just put down like so many other Christmas toys that you might put down? It didn't. It carried on. And what what was it that fu- that, that fueled that? So we've we've asked people that when they backed the film to start sharing those those stories. And funny enough, in the even in the last week or so, there's been some really really amazing stories that have made us rethink certain aspects of the film, and that's what we wanted because that's the only way we can learn, um, and is by hearing these experiences from other people. Well, it was the era, like you mentioned, of the bedroom programmer, and I mean we've had you know people like the Oliver Twins on who you know tell us their story about the fact that they they hated that rubber keyboard that much. <laughs> they would actually do their programming on an Amstrad and then send it down a serial cable yep. to the Spectrum. Yeah, I mean, what was it actually like to program the Spectrum then? From you know the stories you've heard, was, what was the experience like? Um, genuinely, it was that most programs that talk about the Spectrum talk about how wonderful it was in terms of um, its capability because it was in a way a little bit like the the, the Raspberry Pi and the fact that it was a relatively straightforward to learn and use but it came down to your own ingenuity so there was I always remember John Ripman telling me a story once about oh, yeah. when he was doing match day and this will this will probably go in the new film actually um, but he was talking about match day two at uh, match day and he'd never done he'd never done a football game before and he'd he'd obviously taken the the job promotion to do to do a, he was going to do a football game and he'd he'd sort of bluffed it to sort of say i'm going to do the best football game there is out there and he purposely didn't want to look at international soccer or anything on the on the commodore 64 he wanted to just focus on what he could do on the spectrum and he said that he'd never worked out ai before and he literally just thought well how do i get another opponent to kick the ball at me you know so i'm i'm so he literally just put it in and said if ball free kick at the opponent's goal and he said he ran the routine and the ai opponent immediately got hold of the ball and boosted it down and it went in and he said he started crying because he realized that oh i now know how i can i can make this happen but if you think about it john ritman obviously was went on to be a stunning an amazing developer he match day two was fantastic as was his batman game and head over heels um but that that fundamental aspect of being able to sit there and work it out and he was programming directly onto his spectrum directly onto it so with the the rubber keys and all it was difficult in that way but he he was he found that he said the barrier of entry and learning was extremely low so he was able to work out certain routines quite easily but to to make this this ai work Uh, matthew smith um whereas he didn't like the keyboard on the um on the spectrum he preferred that he had a trs80 
and which you know proper keyboard and 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 he had a piece of vera board that he made that connected the spectrum so he was able to effectively send the code over to the spectrum and he purely used the spectrum as the target machine to see how the game was running so if you think about it you can work on it in several ways you can work on your on the machine itself but the problem is while programming on the target machine itself you have all sorts of issues if you run out of memory you and i noticed a lot of developers started to actually just use another machine with a real keyboard to send the code over to the um over to the spectrum um mm. i think chase hq was written on the atari um atari st but i might be wrong there i'll have to double check that but um yeah so but it was that it was that ability that the spectrum had um to good get good code on it and experiment with it um, it wasn't it wasn't massively complicated to get. You didn't have to deal with the hardware aspects of the Commodore 64, which, you know, people obviously did. But with the Spectrum, it was a lot more easier to come to grips with. It doesn't mean that you were necessarily a fantastic games developer because of that, but it did at least have a, um, a low barrier of entry to get to learn the basics of it. Um, I don't mean learn basic, but just to get the basic grips of being able to make something happen on it. Well, you mentioned the uh, playground rivalry with the C64. Uh, kind of how fierce was that? It was It was fierce. I mean, when I say fierce, I mean, uh, certainly at my school um, in East London, it was a, uh, you know, it, you'd be laughed at or, or there was, you know, there was always this thing about the colour clash from the Commodore 64 crowd, which really isn't that big a deal. When you, when you take something like Attic Attack on the Spectrum, right, another ultimate game, it runs so fast. It's so playable. It look and it looks so beautiful. And you don't mind about those little bits of bits of clashing. And you've got on the spectrum, you've got that such beautiful refinement of graphics. You know, you really can go in so close and get so I mean, Mark Jones, Mark R. Jones used to talk to us about about the fact that you can just do so much from an artistic point of view with the Spectrum. The Commodore, you were dealing with more blocky sprites. You you had issues with blocks. Yes, you had um you didn't have the clash and it had its own it had its own issues but the commodore 64 crowd would always shout at the spectrum community of you can't have the music you know you've not got rob hubbard even though rob hubbard did end up doing games for the uh, music for the spectrum later um but i think i'd like to think there was a general appreciation of it that might harmless bantering maybe but i think there was an appreciation that we're all fans of computer games and some people absolutely love the color clash that's kind of one thing that artists actually kind of going for that old look and it really really identified it actually yes it did i agree completely with that i don't think it i mean that's why i used ultimate as an example because they didn't really care about it i don't think they wrote anything i don't think i think they just accepted it was it was a, a deficiency of the machine but they just didn't really alter their games around it you know they they just they just got on with it and you just sort of accepted it you know like we talked about cassette loading earlier you kind of just accepted that games took five to six minutes. You go around telling people today, you know, kids playing Fortnite today, oh, you know, back in the day, we had to, you know, wait five, six minutes, and you might not even <laughs> know, you know. And it, they'd be like, what? You know, what would you do in that time? You know, like, well, we just accepted it. I'd make a cup of tea or something like that. You know, and it, well, to be fair, I, I waited about an hour for an update on the PS5 the other day. So, uh, <laughs> in comparison, you're, you're lucky to get one. Well, I mean, you know, you mentioned before about the magazines as well. And obviously, back then, magazines were king, you know, in that pre internet era. We had stuff like, you know, Crash on the Spectrum. I mean, um, how are you going to be covering the magazines then? Well, we've got some interviews from the original, from uh, the original, from Bedrooms to Billions, but we do want to go out. Your Sinclair was. Uh, was particularly popular outside the UK. And in fact, one of 
things we discovered recently was it actually outsold Crash in a number of the areas we thought Crash was dominant. That was, again, something uh, someone wrote to us about, wasn't it? That's right. The uh, magazine. That's right. And were able to provide us with accurate sales figures, um, which, you know, that's the beauty of our our hobby, you see, is... um, is that you've geeks are fantastic at retaining information and and collecting information and being able to share information so you can get some fantastic and i by the way we're geeks so i'm using that in a very very uh in a nice term but yes it's um the magazines themselves we kind of want to show how they they evolved as the, as the actual gaming hobby itself evolved so their readerships went up and the the whole nature of the way that games were sold um, and promoted through the magazines changed as well. We can't go into it in the same level of depth that we did to within from bedrooms to billions. But as this is only going to be spectrum, we can focus on the spectrum, the spectrum side of things. So CVG, your Sinclair, um, Crash. Obviously, we're going to be featuring and, and a few others. But it'd be more along the lines of also them knowing of how they actually started to understand when this was more than just a fad. Because if you go back to 1980, 81, the sort of technology magazines, their 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 um, audiences were not ginormous. You know, they they suited a particular hobby. But when the Spectrum started to really sell the millions of units, certainly in the UK, then the magazines started to go up in sales, and that meant they could put more money into them and colour photographs and and all sorts of things. So yes, we are going to cover the way they evolved as well. Would you guys be covering piracy at all? Yeah. I don't think I think we could probably do a twenty hour film <laughs> on piracy. And I don't I think at the end of it we'd still come out with the, the similar balance of conclusions but, uh, that we could assume beforehand because piracy uh, one person will say to you they help the industry and another person will say they stole money from from developers that needed it in the industry and i think that that's the thing when when children were copying tapes um in the playground spreading them around because they didn't have the money to buy the full price games it can be argued all day long about whether that would have led to more game sales or more piracy. It's, it's impossible to say. Um, one minute I think one thing, next minute I think the other. I, I, I mean, whether I, I do think that the the, the popularity of, of games went up because people were able to get more available, get access to them through through piracy. But at the end of the day, when you when when we've come to meet so many developers over the years, where it really made that they really needed that money and they really needed those sales. And like any artist, if, if they don't, if they like to create, I've no, I don't think I've ever met a game developer that was in it for the money. They were yeah. in it to, they were in it to make games because that's what they love doing. Right. I think, I think that would be a good, a good kind of idea for the next bedrooms to be <laughs> a, a piracy one. The piracy is. I think that's, that's the thing we could, we could genuinely talk about it all day. Um, because I, I think you know we've met so many developers where it, where they didn't make as much money from a game as they as they hoped, and they you know we found it hard with from bedrooms because there were people that lost their houses, you know when um, not through being in from bedrooms, but for, you know from at, at the time when they when they didn't get the sales that they needed or left the industry or or whatever it affected their lives. So you can't just you know we can all joke about piracy but with certain developers you can't because you we know how it how it affected them but yeah there is a there is a, a an argument to say that the industry grew in the 1980s because so many people were able to get access to games that otherwise they wouldn't be able to afford but i'm not saying now if that's a good or a bad thing but 
See how sensitive did I sit on the fence enough for that? Well, I mean, one thing I loved about you know when I saw your Kickstarter is someone like you know who's waiting for my new Spectrum next. You know, hopefully my I'm the second uh, edition Kickstarter backer. Um, you're going to be covering the modern Spectrum scene as well. I mean, is stuff like the next going to be in there? Yes, it is absolutely because it's a genuine continuation of the of of the systems. So it would be it would be incorrect for us to not um, fe- um, feature it in there. So we're going to be speaking to um, Henrique Olivas and. Uh, and Jim and a few others, um, Michael Flashware and a few others associated with the with that project. And I have to say, we've got the Spectrum next sitting here next to us. It's stunning. It's absolutely yeah. stunning. And it, it's it's. I mean, even even when you take the cassette port, you know, they didn't have to put that in, but they, of course they did. You know, little things so you can still load. It's still load games in the old fashioned way if you want to. You can still play them in the old fashioned way if you want to, or you can take advantage of, of of the faster processor and USB and all sorts of other things. Or all those multiple cores of clones as well, which uh, is very apparent on the Spectrum Next, how many versions of the Spectrum were out there. We're having trouble logging them all at the moment. It's quite it's quite amazing. But I think that also shows that when I said, I know I've said it a few times about lar- a low barrier of entry, but it was a low barrier of entry to clone it as well. It was mm. off-the-shelf components so you could you could clone it i would say easily but you could see why it could be cloned whereas the commodore 64 was was a different thing altogether um so yeah you can see why why that happened but of course somebody had to do the first one and we do by the way with the spectrum next we're also going to be covering the progression up to the spectrum and the systems after that so we will be talking about the mk14 um, and there was actually a little bit, because that's the thing, we all take it, MK14, ZX80, ZX81, right up to the ZX Spectrum of how it was arrived, and then the later iterations that came from it. But how much we take for granted that we can have, a, a, in 1982, we could buy a pre-assembled ZX Spectrum in a box. You wouldn't think that it could come any other way. But you go back a few years earlier, and people were buying kit computers that they had to solder together themselves. And then you go yeah. back before 1977, and if you wanted to get access to a computer, you were on a million-dollar mainframe. Um, you, you know, there were cheaper versions at that point, but still you were effectively walking into a room um, like signing out of the intro to the professionals, you know, with lots of uh, <laughs> lots of tape, tapes going around um, because that's what they were. We pre- A pre-assembled home computer, I think the PET was the first one in, in 77, we do take for granted how simple it is, but it was in 1982, the, the whole thing had been going five years up to that point. So everything was effectively a progression of that of that original idea. Well, I imagine, you know, lots of people listening, their appetite will be nicely whetted for uh, checking out the uh, the documentary, The Rubber Keyed Wonder, 40 Years of the ZX Spectrum. On Kickstarter now, I mean, when the show comes out on Friday, there's still going to be eight days left on it. You've already smashed the target. But tell us a bit about the campaign and um, some of the rewards on that. Thanks very much. Well, um, the campaign is to is to fund the initial film, which which we've done, and then we want to expand out and get more, create more featurettes for the DVD and Blu-ray so that we've got more, more content, more subtitles, photo gallery, all the things that people would expect. Um, but the other thing that we really need help for that we want to achieve with our stretch goals is the licensing of third-party archive. That's the sort of thing that you expect where the BBC, when they interviewed, for example, the Money Programme in 1980, they did an interview with Sir Clive talking about 
um, his vision for home computers. So this is two years before the Spectrum. And there's also other little visits to Sinclair and other, and other things that we've been able to find. And we found them with the original From Bedrooms to Billions. But they are many, many thousands of pounds to license. So it's a it's a huge amount of money to bring that in, and that's the bit that people love about. Uh, well, that's what well, they yeah, tell us. That's the uh, the archive is quite key to our movies. We really like that in there because mm. it gives you that sense of nostalgia as well, and it works really well with the interviews that we're going to be doing. So yeah, that's what we're. That's why them, them stretch goals are there to try and get us up to, you know, a, a nice amount of money so that we can get some really good archive in there. And we've got some really amazing stuff that we've got. We've got to thank Oliver Frey. Is um has given us two three pieces of artwork from 1985, um which just goes with the the cover that we've got for the film. We've got this um we're very pleased with it the main the main cover, and Oliver sent us um some pictures which just just merge with it. They almost look like they were created for it. Um, so we've got some artwork for a special slipcase which we're not going to do again with his artwork on both sides. And also, if we hit the 67K stretch goal, which means we'll, we'll have been able to get all the archive that we're going to need for this film. Anyway, we, John Harris is allowing us to use his ZX Spectrum manual. So when you bought the ZX Spectrum back in the day, you had this piece of artwork on the manual that was drawn by John Harris. And he'd already done the manual for the ZX81, which he's also included along with the ZX8, the ZX um, Spectrum Microdrive manual. So we've got these three pieces of fantastic artwork along with jonathan bett's artwork for the zx the spectrum next i'm getting my zx mixed up here um so we've had all this amazing artwork um given to us for this campaign to help us um but the reversible cover we think would be quite amazing if we can if we can achieve that we've got t-shirts and um other other little things which make it hopefully we feel memorable there's even the option we're opening things up a little bit for this one is um we're doing some watch parties and we're doing Q&As Q over Zoom. So there's certain tiers where you can really feel part of it because obviously this film is going to be made over over the 40th anniversary. We're going to go uh, beyond the 23rd of April because we want the film out for Christmas next year. We're absolutely adamant on that. The film's going to be coming out. Um, we're going to have it turned around in less than a year and out. Um, so we want people can share in that journey right the way across the anniversary itself and have a Q&A with us, watch the film with us. There's all sorts of ways which um, of supporting us. Just have a look at the pledges and uh, pick one that you feel suits you. And also, if I may throw this in, um, mm -hmm. a little competition for, um, for fans of the Retro Hour. Um, if anyone listening to this backs our film um, from listening to this, if when they... When they back it, they can send a message to us over the Kickstarter. All they need to do is say the retro hour in the message, and we'll we're going to do a little draw at the end of the campaign. Um, and anyone that's messaged us with the retro hour in the message will be drawn out of a hat, and we're going to do signed posters of all of our films um, as a little Fantastic. as a little extra competition. So, and a thanks for for your support. So yeah, that's, hopefully that'll be nice for people. Well, it, it's always amazing catching up with you both um, and your movies, you know, just absolutely must-watches for fans of retro gaming and computing. And this just sounds like, you know, a real love letter to the spectrum as well. So um, obviously I'll link it up, the Kickstarter, in our show notes. Um, Anthony and Nicola, thank you so much for coming on and I can't wait to check thank it out. Thank you, guys. Thank been you very much. Absolute pleasure. It's fantastic. Thanks. Great.